I'm Isabel Gontier, Chief Assessment Officer at PSI Services, and I invite you to delve deep into the world of testing with me. Every episode, I'll be on the virtual couch with experts from the testing industry, engaging in conversations about the latest developments in our field. Your quest for testing knowledge starts here. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Tried and Tested podcast provided to you directly from the ICE conference in Colorado Springs. I am Isabel Gonti. I'm the Chief Assessment Officer at PSI Services, and it's exciting to be here, and hopefully you can see a little bit of my background here. There's mountains, there's nice sun, uh, so the ICE conference is, is, is in full swing right now, and I'm excited to, to be able to be in this second episode episode um, and talk about a very, very, very key topic here, the diversity, equity, and inclusion across the assessment life cycles, but in general as well. It's such a critical topic, lots of conversations and presentations here at the ICE conference. And we took the opportunity to say, let's grab a couple of great people and have our second episode going on live from here, Colorado Springs. So I'm very excited to welcome our two guests uh, for this episode. And we have Shebra Toussaint, Senior Director of Client Services at PSI. Hello, Shebra. Hello, Isabel. And we have um, Steve Depp, Funding Partner at Capstan. Hello, Hello. Steve. Um, so I think one thing that's really interesting that we do on this podcast that I feel very important because uh, everybody has a unique and interesting story about how they got into testing, the testing world, you know, and I'm interested in hearing your story as we get started, as we get warmed up into this uh, episode. So maybe we'll start with you, Steve. Tell me a little bit more about like, how did you get into like testing and assessment? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, quite a story. First, thanks. Thanks a lot for, for having me on this podcast, uh, Isabel. Um, how did it start? I had a um, a translation agency in, in Belgium, and my main clients were universities. I was translating reports, um, mostly educational science, for them. And then the, the OECD, Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, a sort of club of rich countries, uh, issued a call for tenders for an international large-scale assessment. They wanted to measure knowledge and skills in 15-year-old students, well, close to the end of compulsory schooling, um, in at the time, I think it was in 32 countries. So that was issued in 97. And my research area at that time was to write guidelines for translation reviewers uh, so that they would give a rationale for any correction they would make and so that you could have data and comparable feedback on translation quality. And so that university, that was my main client, they, they um, participated in that proposal. So they, they prepared a bid and asked me to contribute to their, to their proposal, to their bid, because they needed a methodology to um, verify to what extent the level of difficulty of the assessment items would remain the same across languages and across cultures. I thought, sure, I can do that. And then I started wondering how. So um, I'm a comparative linguist by training, 
um, classical philology and comparative linguistics. And then I went to, um, to study a bit of psychometrics um, because um, I needed to know the, the mechanics. Uh, I wanted to, to list the different linguistic features that are likely to drive the psychometric properties of the items so that I could prepare a, a checklist for the teachers who would revise the translated assessment items and, and report on translation quality. So that's, that's how it started. That's the PISA project, Program for International Student Assessment by the OECD in 1997-1998. And I must confess that the first delivery that I made to the OECD with feedback on translation quality in, in uh, 98 for the field trial in 1999, I'm still red-faced and ashamed about how, how inconsistent and how messy that was. It was perhaps promising. And so after that, we started working with, with Boston College, with EIEA, with all other people who collect data in multiple languages. And we started developing that methodology. And so I became a, well, an, an expert in uh, multilingual assessments and the multicultural component in assessments at that time. So now, Shabra, let's hear about your story. Yes, yeah, Steve, your story was so exciting. This is a perfect example of diverse background. So I was actually a directory assistance operator with Bell Atlantic before I came into the assessment industry. And the first year I worked there, they asked me to work on Christmas. Well, I was also a single mother and the idea of working on Christmas broke my heart. And I decided then and there I was never going to work on Christmas again. So that led me to start looking for new employment. And I came across an ad a company called Assessment Systems, Inc. Um, they were hiring not too far from where I live. They were in a little suburb called Ballacanwood, PA. And I was hired as a customer service representative. And I was actually scheduling um, appointments for test takers to take their licensing exam for real estate and insurance. Um, and while I was a customer service agent, I remember the account managers coming into the department that just talk about different things that the client had concerns about. We may have been given misinformation or the information was changing. They were updating our fact sheets. So I would watch them come in and I said, I want to do that. That's the job that I want to have. I want to be a program manager. So throughout the industry, it became kind of interchangeable. Account manager, program manager, they're kind of same thing. Um, but at that time, they were called account managers. And I said, that's what I want to do. Um, so I ended up becoming an account manager at some point, and now here I am at PSI, Senior Director of Client Services, so it's been quite the journey. I always say I grew up in the assessment industry. I started when I was 12, and um, now there you here are. I am. Here I am. Oh, Happy no, to this, be here. This is great, and like I said, it, I love this because everybody has such an interesting story, and I think it kind of feeds in and builds the professional you are um, within the industry, and also kind of shapes what your key interests are and what you really bring to the table. And I think that kind of I think feels like it's a great segue into uh, the topic for us um, uh, on today's podcast, which is uh, the. The, the very important conversation around diversity, equity, and inclusion in testing. So what does that mean? What does a focus on DE&I look like in testing? And I want to start with you, Shebra, because I know, you know, very passionate about that from yes. your background, from the work you do. So tell us more about this. 
Yes. So for me, diversity, equity, and inclusion in testing means that it's inclusive, that anybody that wants to test to get a, a, a specific credential or a license, they have an opportunity to do so, that it's less, it's, it's more inclusive and that, you know, people from different backgrounds and, and even in terms of accommodations. So what type of special accommodations do you need and how can we serve you in that way? I think about it from a pricing point um, perspective as well. Um, so are we pricing these exams to a point where everybody can afford to even take them? Um, and then it gets to, to the level of the folks that are taking these tests and they're getting credentialed and they're getting these licenses. What are they being taught at the very beginning from an education perspective? Because a lot of these credentials um, and licenses, they require um, certain education. So are we talking about unconscious bias in those conversations? Are we talking about diversity um, and the need for that? in these conversations in this education and then of course as you get into the life cycle of the assessment and you talk about building the items and what that looks like and are they culturally sensitive um so it's it's such a it's kind of like a rubik's cube and you get to like turn it around in all these different ways and all these different angles because diversity is so um big and it just touches its tentacles um touches everything throughout the whole um, assessment life cycle. And we just need to understand at each point how it's being presented, how it's being taught, how it's being learned, um, and how we're sharing that knowledge. We always say that knowledge is power, but when you share it, that's when it becomes powerful. So that's my thinking in terms of DEI and testing. Yeah, no, I, and it's great. And it's interesting because Steve and I have been on a few presentations together where we've been having that conversation and, you know, talking about the importance, yes, across the assessment life cycle, but also the criticality of doing this right. It's not just about a checkbox saying, okay, we're including some DNI considerations. Yes. It's much more than that. And and Steve, you know, can you expand a little bit more on that when we think again about that concept in testing yeah. for you from your perspective? Yeah, I must say I really love Shebra's uh, metaphor with the Rubik's Cube. I think it's it's very appropriate. I've, I've approached diversity and equity from the language and, and cultural angle, uh, looking at differential item functioning first across countries. So different groups were uh, disadvantaged or advantaged by the way a question was formulated. And because it happened in many different languages, we realized that, in fact, it was mainly due to the way um, the items were formulated in the source language in the first place. There are cultural markers that make uh, the question difficult to understand for certain groups or offensive for certain groups. And not so much attention was given to that, you know, 20, 20 years ago or, or even 15 years ago. And so um, what, what I think is that if you um, have a, a dominant group writing items uh, for a target group that can only relate to the dominant group, you're missing out on a very broad yeah. pool of gifted candidates who may be um, uh, deterred, frightened, uh, and, and disadvantaged by the way the test is conceived. And we've gone a long way now in realizing that, in addressing that uh, preemptively, even with, with workshops for item writers to make them aware of uh, the risk of having unnecessary complexity, for example, blur the constructs you're trying to measure. So I, I think it's a, um, not just about fairness. It's also about um, a, a validity that remains stable across the board, across the, the 
diversity of the pool of candidates. Yeah, it's it's absolutely critical because you need to think about the candidates that are going to be testing. And then from that, I really I like the point as well. It's about who are you engaging across the entirety of the process in developing that assessment, uh, in engaging with your industry and having that diversity included. But I think you can, we can push this even further is to say, well, how are we also ensuring that we empower and give the tools to those diverse panels and groups of item writers and reviewers and as we engage them to give them the voice that they need to have to really really provide that impact and influence um, the, the required changes so yeah I think that that is that is super critical as we continue to think about the engagement of the right people diversifying the the, the subject matter experts training them giving them the tools that they need and thinking about outcomes right yeah. what are the expected outcomes so when mm-hmm. we talk a lot about SMEs oh we need diverse SMEs what does that really mean and what is the expected outcome because when you say I need diverse SMEs, are you checking a box by just putting mm-hmm. in diverse SMEs or are you really identifying the expected outcomes and then looking at the data to see if you're moving the needle in the right direction? So if your reason for needing the diverse SMEs is truly supporting the outcomes that you were identified and are expecting to, to get. So I think that's important as well. Yeah, no, excellent point. I want to build up a little bit, uh, Steve, on on your 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 comment around you know the the language aspect and in, in considerations around diversity, equity, and inclusion, mm-hmm. and kind of like push this a little bit more and say, you know, can can you talk to us a little bit more about that, but also how you might want to highlight a time where you identified by bias in testing, and you know, w- what are you doing about this from 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 where you stand. <laughs> Yeah, uh, that's also a very good question. Um, you know, when you when you analyze a translated or adapted test, um, and you want to see whether the level of difficulty remains the same across cultures and across languages, the two main issues that you identify are meaning shifts, and meaning shifts are usually language driven, and then perception shifts, and perception shifts are mostly culture driven. So you come from a different cultural background, you perceive the question differently. And, and that can be due to uh, social markers such as um, there was this, this test, of, it's a known example, but there was this test given in, in um, the south of the United States where uh, one of the stimuli about which questions were asked was referring to, to uh, a yard and, and mowing the lawn. And um, a, a pool of respondents uh, from or disadvantaged, uh, disadvantaged um, groups was was just unable to relate to that to that stimulus and did not react to the question very well. Uh, whereas when it was changed to to cutting the grass instead of mowing the lawn, um, it was much better understood. What I'm saying here is that um, there is a register in in the way you write that uh, may be um, unfamiliar to part of your applicants. And by um, confronting them with that unfamiliar register, you're, you're disadvantaged. You're, you're putting them at a disadvantage. So we've, we've identified with data, with differential item functioning analysis, uh, perception shifts that were clearly due to the way the items were formulated. So if it's a 
future or a pilot when you identify that, you can still correct it. Um, if you see that ex post, you have to recalibrate. You have to eliminate some of the items for which certain groups did not perform the way uh, they were expected to perform. And, and when we speak about data, obviously, and leveraging that, you totally speak my language here, of course. And, and I think that's, that's really important because identifying, being able to evaluate and using that information then as a feedback loop to really then continue to enhance and address the potential issues that we're noticing. Shebra, you know, I, from your perspective, where do you stand? What do you see? And how how do you see uh, opportunities to mitigate some of those challenges? You know what, when I think about some of those challenges, first, let me think, uh, I think about when I took the SATs years ago. Um, and then in the early 2000s, I think it was, they started saying the SATs are biased. And I started reading all the articles and I realized that I remember taking the test and saying to myself, how am I supposed to know that? Like, <laughs> I don't know that. Should I know that? Um, so that kind of validated some things for me in reading that and understanding that, like, for example, questions that have analogies, that will just shift based on your culture and what your background is to Steve's point about mowing the lawn versus cutting the grass. So as we fast forward to today and we are embracing DEI and the assessment industry and we're thinking these through in the assessment cycle, I absolutely think that as we have these conversations and as we get into the data, I think that's so important that we capture the data and that we look at it and we respond to it. So if you're looking at um, you, you're capturing the data, for example, and you get this item analysis back and you're looking at it and you recognize that a certain group of people are struggling with that particular item, then you have, I feel like you have a responsibility to take that item and figure out what's wrong there. And then, and if, it, if it's permeated through the program, you have an op a, a responsibility to look at that and fix it. Because I, and again, that leads back to that inclusivity because a lot of the, everybody, everybody that gets a license and certification, they're doing this to serve a community. They're doing this to serve diverse communities. So as they get licensed and they go out into the world and they're serving, you know, for example, emergency room nurses and doctors and even appraisers, you know, we've heard some challenges with appraisers and the biases that have come in appraising homes. How can we get all that taken care of in the licensing part? So that when they get out there and actually start to work, that those biases don't show up in their work because we've already addressed it through the um, life cycle of um, getting them assessed and licensed. So yeah, I and think I th we're, we're in the right direction. Definitely. Absolutely. And I think it kind of gets into, you know, uh, building from that, what are the implications if yes. DE&I is not properly considered in yes. testing? And, and uh, Shebra, maybe building on what you just said, what are those implications and, and risks associated with that? Yeah, yeah. So you just run that risk of not mm -hmm. serving all of these different people in the community. You run the risk of <clears throat> even saying something that's not not appropriate, and you don't realize that you're talking to a client and you've said something that wasn't appropriate. Um, so again, just thinking about it from a culturally sensitive perspective and how you're out and you're engaging with the community, you need to be um, cognizant of these differences and respectful of those differences and knowledgeable about those differences, so that you can serve them in the way that they deserve to be. Uh, represented. Yeah. I, I think another risk is that um, you might have a, a parallel circuit in the professional world. You know, people that just don't want to be certified anymore and start learning on the job, and um, that will discredit 
credentialing, discredit certification, because you will have uh, people running restaurants or grooming dogs or operating cranes yes. who will be self-taught and who might be very good, but they'll, they'll turn away from um, tests that are uh, not inclusive. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting because in our first episode, we were talking about that, the yes. chaos it would create if we are not truly taking the time to have the rigorous, defensible test that will attest to the competence of people. So if uh, missing it, missing the mark on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and not addressing it and including those considerations throughout the assessment life cycle. If the risk is that, that in the end, people will step away from those certifications and licensing tests. Well, that's a massive risk. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. There is. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So then it gets us to what, what, What's next for us as an industry, as a community, as it relates to DNI? How can we all work towards more inclusivity in testing uh, for us to manage the risks? But more than that, in a way, it's kind of embracing this and getting us to the next level. Steve, what are your thoughts? Uh, that's, a, that's a million dollar question, right? Yes, <laughs> I know. Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> No, I, I think that um, it, is, it is crucial to um, start from science. Science is we want to measure a certain construct. So we want to identify any potential elements that might blur this construct. And having a, text, a test that is not inclusive, um, meaning that certain groups have more difficulties in taking the test, maybe because the, the language proficiency level required to take the test is too high, um, this would be blurring the construct. So you would not be measuring what you want to measure. Now, that's the first step. And the second step would be um, intelligence and talent are evenly distributed across all groups of the population. What is not evenly distributed is the, the opportunity to um, bring that talent to serve the community. And these opportunities, I think, require some form of um, affirmative action. So you need to, to take extra steps to convince talented people who may be less um, prone to take tests that, um, that they could lead them to success, that these tests are designed to set them up for success. And that would, for me, require uh, having a very uh, diverse pool of item writers, of uh, test sponsors, of test owners. Uh, this group has to be inclusive from the start. You have to open positions, I mean, positions with big responsibilities um, in the testing industry for all the different groups of the population because talent is so evenly distributed and, and opportunities are not. And I think we need to... Um, move the slider a little bit so that the people who don't have the same opportunities as the privileged groups have easier access to them. Yeah, Shebra, I'm sure I'm sure you have you want to add to that. Yes, absolutely. We have to continue to have the conversations that we're having now. Yeah. Podcasts like this. Um, we have to continue to have the sessions at conferences like ICE. We need to continue to engage. I mean, I've been coming to conferences for a really long time. And in the last two years, I have seen more diversity than I have ever seen in my entire career. So I know that the shift is starting to happen. It started a while ago. 
Um, I think that outside of the conversations, we, we, we want action, right? We need to start to see action. And I would just encourage um, all of the organizations that do the credentialing and the certification to really, really genuinely embrace um, DEI, understand that your program would be better for it. Um, you would if you and it's not that, you know, I don't want people to look at it as, oh, we're watering down our program. Sometimes when people hear DEI, they think, oh, that means we're just going to let anybody in. No, we're not letting go of your minimum competency guidelines. It's still going to be a reliable exam, legally defensible, all those things that are necessary um, to make sure that we're serving um, the communities. Right. But I think that we need to think about it in terms of what, again, the data that we're collecting, responding to that data, identifying the outcomes, knowing when we're being successful, being able to pivot when we're not. But it's actually just rolling up your sleeves and doing the work. We need to all come together and just consistently do the work. We're talking about a whole shift and how we do something across an entire assessment industry, right? And when we start talking about a shift, we're talking about the things that it takes to shift something like that. And that's the consistency, it's the structure around it, it's the discipline, and it's the genuine um, passion and understanding that this is the way that we need to go. And not just because it's the right thing to do, but you're gonna be better for it, your organization will be better for it, so. Absolutely. We have to do the work. No, and I think that that's a great call for action in so many ways. Yes. And I think there's a lot of opportunities for us as a testing community working together yes. with the various credentialing programs across every partners that we have and continue that conversation. That's why being, being here at the ICES Exchange is great because this is an important conversation that we're having, we're going to continue to have, and then we can really promote promote change, awareness, and um, evolution. So I really, really, truly appreciate the time you took to, to do this podcast uh, from your busy schedule here at the conference. Um, and in closing, I want to mention we're very excited that uh, PSI has published a guide on DNI across the assessment lifecycle. So I invite you to have a look. It's on the PSI website. Lots of great nuggets and elements there to, again, continue the conversation because we don't have all the answers, but together we can push the limits and always get better. Yes. So thank you so much again, Stephen Shebra, and thank you everyone for tuning in to this second episode of the Tried and Tested podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.